Because of God's essential nature of holiness, you can't know Him, you can't be in the fellowship with Him, that is, have a relationship with Him, and continue to have the same relationship to sin that you did before you came to know Him. It's not possible. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the Bible teach about confession, and in particular, confession of sin? Have you ever pondered what that means? If you're a believer, how frequently should confession of sin occur? And if Christ died once and for all, is there really any further need to confess? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. We're looking at three tests of an authentic Christian faith as found in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. Today, Tom will examine how a believer's relationship to sin reveals whether that person is a genuine Christian uh, or a false Christian. Friend, what is your relationship to sin? Let's join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 as we continue our study of this wonderful letter. Today, we're going to learn how and why to confess our sins to God. Just to remind you of the context, we're studying John's first letter, and it consists of three cycles or three movements of the tests of eternal life. We're looking at the very first of those cycles. It begins in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs through chapter 2, verse 27. In this first cycle, there are three tests. So there are three movements or three cycles in the book, and each of those movements or each of those cycles consists of three tests. And the first test in this first cycle, whether or not we have eternal life, is our obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments." The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him 
ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now the theme of these verses we've reduced to this. You can know that you have eternal life, that you are a true Christian, because you now have a new relationship to sin. Now this first test that we've just read together is based on two fundamental biblical truths. I've already introduced them to you. Let me mention them again. The first truth, as we saw in verse 5, is God's essential nature of holiness. Verse 5 says, this is the message we've heard from him. We announce to you that. Here's the content of the message the apostles heard from Jesus. First of all, God is light. That is, God is holy. He's separate from sin. He's pure. He's morally right. And then it says, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is related to the first statement, but separate and making a separate point, and that is God is completely without sin. Everything we know as light here has shadows and shades and variation. Even the brightest light of the midday sun casts shadows. God casts no shadows. There are no hints of shadow in his character. He is all perfection. He's completely without sin. Now, because of God's essential nature, this is the point John is making here, because of God's essential nature of holiness, you can't know Him, you can't be in the fellowship with Him, that is, have a relationship with Him, and continue to have the same relationship to sin that you did before you came to know Him. It's not possible. That then introduces us to a second fundamental biblical truth that we started to look at last time, and that is the believer's new relationship to sin. If you have been born of God, just as God is light, you have become light and you have a new relationship to the sin that you once enjoyed and lived in. In the rest of this section, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1 and running through chapter 2 of verse 6, John shows how our relationship to sin reveals whether we are true, genuine Christians or whether we are false Christians. Now, let me just remind you of what I mean by a false Christian. A false Christian is someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been saved. I know him, and yet truly isn't his. There are such people. Jesus says in, Mar in Matthew 7 that at the judgment, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we know you. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. And so clearly, there are many in the world who are true believers, and there are many attached to the church of Jesus Christ who are false believers, false Christians. How do you distinguish them? Well, John's going to help us understand that, and it has to do in part with our relationship to sin. So we're learning then that the believer's new relationship to sin is first shown by the pattern of his life. That's in verses 6 and 7. We studied that last time together. It's shown by the pattern of his life. A false Christian, verse 6, habitually lives in sin. He walks in darkness. That's, that's what his lifestyle looks like. He's characterized by sin. A true Christian, verse 7, habitually lives in holiness. He walks in the light. He walks in the same moral purity that God himself has, not to the same extent, not without shadow. We sin, but it doesn't characterize our lives as it once did. 
Now today, we, we learn a second way that this new relationship to sin is shown. It is shown, secondly, by the admission of inherent sinfulness. By the admission of inherent sinfulness. This is the message of verses 8 and 9. As he did with the first explanation, he begins here with the false Christian. And in verse 8, he tells us that a false Christian denies his sinfulness. A false Christian denies his sinfulness. Notice verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. Literally, it's in the present tense in the Greek text. So if we are saying, that is consistently claiming that we are having no sin. Now, this expression, no sin, could mean that this person is denying that he's ever committed acts of sin. That's possible, but unlikely. And the reason it's unlikely is look down at verse 10. Verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, that clearly refers to acts of sin. So it's best to see verse 8 as a a separate denial, a different denial, not a denial of the the acts of sin, but verse 8 is a denial of inherent sinfulness. In other words, this person is denying the presence of, of what theologians call original sin or of total depravity. And you can see this even in the wording. Notice the wording carefully. If we are saying that we are having no sin, singular, doesn't say sins, but sin. This is a claim not to be in a state or condition of sinfulness. Again, not a denial of the acts of sin, but rather of an inborn disposition to sin. It is a denial of human depravity. Now, before I go any further, let me give you a couple of theological definitions just so you're clear. All right, I'm going to use a couple of phrases. First of all, original sin. What is original sin? It is a theological expression that describes the effects of the sin of Adam on every person. The effects of the sin of Adam on every person. Because Adam was your representative in the garden, because he acted on your, in your place and in mine as well, because he fell, we have original sin. We have effects because of that. And there are two basic effects. The first is imputed real guilt. In other words, he acted in my place, his guilt is imputed to me. And I am guilty because of Adam's sin. We saw that in Romans chapter 5. Secondly, and, and more sobering in many ways, is inherited corruption. Not only did I get guilt because he represented me and failed, but I get inherited corruption from my parents. By natural generation, I have received inherited moral corruption. Now, that corruption manifests itself. So that's original sin. That corruption that I inherited in original sin manifests itself in total depravity. And total depravity simply describes how far-reaching the effects of that corruption are. We say total. That doesn't mean every person is as bad as they could be, obviously. Total, maybe a better word, is comprehensive. It is comprehensive depravity. That is, it affects every part of our nature, including every faculty and power of both body and soul. That's what the Scripture teaches, and I'll show you that in a moment. So what you have here in verse 8 was a first-century denial of that reality, a denial of inherent sinfulness. Now, in the first century, this is what it looked like. 
I told you when I introduced this book that John is writing in part to confront those who, who, were, who believed the heretics and pulled out of the church. Remember chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. Who were those heretics and what were they teaching? Well, the heresy that infected those churches was an embryonic form of Gnosticism. We call it pre-Gnosticism. Influenced by the dualism of the Greek philosophers that taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. That was the heart of what they believed. And so the pre-Gnostics argued this way. They said, since the body is matter and it's evil, simply because it's matter, it's irredeemable. Nothing can be done with the body. And so God doesn't really care what you do with your body. And so what you do with your body doesn't matter. It doesn't affect your relationship to God. It's just inherently evil, so do whatever your body wants. It, it really developed into an antinomianism, a sort of live however you want. And that's exactly what happened. You can read about it in the New Testament again and again as Paul and the other apostles confront this mindset. That was the first century. Now, I assume there are no Gnostics here. So what are the modern manifestations of this? You see, the denial of inherent sinfulness is still alive and well today. It just doesn't look the same as it looked in the first century. So let me give you just a couple of modern manifestations of what's going on here in verse 8. First of all, there are those who deny the reality of total depravity. This person says this, I'm basically a good person who sometimes makes bad choices. How many times have I heard that? How many times have you heard that? I am basically a good person who sometimes makes, makes bad choices or decisions. You see, this person convinces himself or herself that when they sin, it's not really who they are. They'll even say that. You know, I don't know why I did that. That's just not me. In other words, what I just did was an aberration. It was, it was like an anomaly. It's not really me. Now, this view is common. This denial of the reality of total depravity is common in, in liberal mainline denominations, mainline Protestantism, like uh, in the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, other mainline churches. It's also the view, frankly, of the, the common man on the street. This is how most people think. A second manifestation of this or expression of this idea is denying the depth of total depravity. This person says, okay, I recognize that there is a part of me that's bad, but I'm not totally bad. There's also a part of me that's good. So here's the person who says, okay, yeah, I can't ignore the fact that there is a part of me that's bad, but I'm not all bad. A third manifestation is denying the extent of total depravity. This is the person who says, okay, I admit it, I, I'm not a good person, but it's still true that I sometimes do good things. So you, I'm not entirely without some, something praiseworthy. You see, most people will admit to sometimes committing acts of sin, but most will not admit that they are totally depraved in all parts of their being. They will not admit that their minds, wills, emotions, and bodies are terminally infected by sin. They will not admit that there's nothing spiritually good in them, which is exactly what the Scriptures teach. A fourth manifestation or expression of this in our day is denying the guilt for sinful choices. In other words, this is the person who says, okay, um, 
I do make bad choices. I do sinful things, but it's not really my fault. It's not me. My bad choices aren't my fault. It's, it's because of something else. It's, some, it's something external to me that's made me this way. It's my culture that's shaped me. It's, it's the internet. That's why I have the problems I have. It's my environment. It's my dysfunctional home. It's my psychological problems. That's why I am the way I am. Mark this, unbelievers always refuse to take full responsibility for their sin. Let me say that again. Unbelievers always refuse to take full responsibility for their sin. Oh, they'll say, yes, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And they'll say, I am in part to blame for that. But they'll never come to the place where they'll say, it is entirely and completely my fault. God's not to blame. My family's not to blame. My genes aren't to blame. It's me. Only the Holy Spirit can bring a person to that place. Now, if we claim to be a Christian and we deny the reality, the depth, the extent, or the personal guilt of total depravity, here is John the Apostle's assessment of our spiritual condition. Look at verse 8. We are deceiving ourselves. The word deceiving means and is often translated in the New Testament to lead astray. It was used of the false teachers who led people astray from the truth. Ironically, here, the person is leading himself astray. He's leading himself away from the truth. The point is, this isn't an accident. This is not a misunderstanding. This is deliberate self-deception. He persuades himself that he's not a sinner. Why do I say it has to be deliberate? Because he knows. The person, every person on this planet knows he's a sinner. I have that on the authority of God himself. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 32, talking about the Gentiles, even those who don't have the Scripture? What does he say about them? They know the ordinance of God, and they know that those who commit such things are worthy of death, but they do them anyway. Romans 1, 32. You say, how do they know? Well, remember Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. They know because God has written the substance of his law on every human heart. And so here's what happens. A person knows. They know that they're sinning, and they know that their sin deserves death. What do they do? They begin to talk to themselves and convince themselves that, no, that's not true. I'm really a good person. I'm really okay. That's why he says here, they deceive themselves. It's deliberate. And therefore, verse 8 goes on to say, and the truth is not in us. The truth here is the body of Christian truth. This person does not truly believe the body of Christian truth. Why? Because if you deny your sinfulness, then it always leads you to a different gospel, right? It's never going to lead you to the true gospel because instead you're going to see that you can contribute somehow. So these people, they're not in Christ. Those who deny that they have a sinful disposition that lies behind all of their sinful actions are deceiving themselves. They've told themselves that lie often enough that they've actually started to believe it. And God's truth The truth of the gospel is not in them because you can't be saved. Mark this, you cannot be saved until you first come to realize your own spiritual bankruptcy. Well, let me ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you have really come to understand and you still live in this understanding that you're not just spiritually sick, you were spiritually dead? 
And you're not just spiritually poor, you are spiritually bankrupt. You have absolutely nothing to offer God. This is where it starts. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Literally, the Greek word there is beggars. Blessed are the beggars in spirit, for to them belong the kingdom of heaven. You don't get into the kingdom till you realize you're a beggar. You're bankrupt and you have nothing. All you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of God. That's why Jesus told that parable in Luke 18 where he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector going to the temple to pray. You remember? And the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself and talked about how wonderful he was. And he didn't ask for forgiveness because he didn't understand his inherent sinfulness. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. What did he do? He beat on his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's how you become a Christian. So you have to realize your own spiritual bankruptcy. So a false Christian denies his sinfulness. That brings us to the second part of it in verse 9. The other side, a true Christian admits he's a sinner and confesses his sins. A true Christian admits he is a sinner and, along with that admission, confesses his sins. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, remember, this verse is correcting the false claim of verse 8. So that means there are a couple of things implied here that aren't directly stated. Let me just bring those out before we look at what's directly stated. First of all, this verse implies that the true Christian admits his total depravity before Christ. He admits his total depravity before Christ. As I said, this is how we became a Christian. You have to start by acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy and throwing yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. David described our total depravity before Christ this way. He said, Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth, I was born in moral guilt, and in sin my mother even conceived me. By the way, that's not a comment about his mother. That's a comment about him. You see, when he looked at his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah, he didn't say to himself, you know what, that's just not me. I, I don't know what happened that day. That's just not who I am. No, he said, no, God, it's exactly who I am, and it's exactly who I've always been. I'm taking full and complete responsibility for the choices that I made. He wasn't claiming his sin was an aberration. He was saying sin had been a reality in his life since he was conceived, and he was just acting out who he was. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us, like one who is unclean. And listen to this, all our righteous deeds, your best moment, is like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We see that this fall, right? The leaves fall and they're swept away by the wind. That's, that's what happens. Our iniquities carry us away. We are so guilty. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What he's saying is it's impossible to change our, our nature, our makeup, who we are. We can't do that. Then you also, if, if the Ethiopian can change his skin, the leopard his spots, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom will have part four for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, it's truly remarkable that believers have a new relationship to sin, isn't it? It's truly amazing, amazing grace, because God makes that reality true for anyone who confesses his son as Lord and follows him. Once we do so, once we repent and believe in Jesus, it's not that we stop sinning, and John's very clear about that, but we're not under the same punishment for sin. We've, we've been forgiven. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are completely and totally forgiven. And God develops within us this new compelling desire to deal with sin. When we do sin, to repent and to long to and to commit to walk in holiness. And this is a remarkable gift of the grace of God from our good and loving Father. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.